the farming program with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. Do you test your soil regularly? How do you do it? Why is it so important? So in addition to ensuring we've got good soil structure, we should be soil sampling every three to five years standard. So soil sampling will identify any nutrient deficiencies, also surplus amounts that are in the soil. Lucy Hassel, fertiliser manager at Openfield, joins us later. We'll look ahead to Harvest Festival 2023, see what the markets are doing and discuss an interesting approach to potatoes as we approach lifting time. Literally just top the potatoes a little bit more in advance what we would have done because it's a bit slower process to stop them growing. Farmer Luke coming up and Sean Sparling takes a look at the state of the crops and has some important agronomy advice for us. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week. Despite the unsettled weather, is there more to come? The forecast for the week ahead at the end of the programme. I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, almost half of fruit and veg farmers fear closure within 12 months, with supermarket buying behaviour a leading cause, according to new research from Riverford. Supermarkets and their buyers are accused of pursuing cheaper food alternatives from overseas, while farmers also criticise fruit and veg specifications for being too hard and complex. Seven out of ten farmers agreed that it would have a positive impact if buyers paid the amount initially agreed and did not slash prices after the initial agreement, and a further two-thirds agreed that it would have a positive impact if buyers bought everything they committed to buy. An open letter signed by over 80 leading figures addressed to the CEOs of the nation's big six supermarkets is now calling for supermarkets to treat farmers more fairly. Rising oil and natural gas prices, together with tighter global supply, have pushed fertiliser prices higher, but they're still thankfully down on this time last year. And DEFRA has said it is committed to addressing concerns over the potential loss of parallel imports and seed treatments by ensuring new measures are in place soon. With the farming industry seeking to address two crucial issues simultaneously, the loss of access to certain seed treatments and the withdrawal of permits for the import of parallel plant protection products. And there's been an announcement of sorts on glyphosate from Therese Coffee. More on that with Sean Sparling in a few minutes. Potato lifting is not that far away. How do you stop the dry matter increasing when it's reached its correct level? Farmer Luke from near Peterborough posted one of his regular videos on X at On Dane Tree Farm, which recommended flailing off the tops of the plants. Luke, tell us about what you do with your spuds. So we used to, the um, the old way, we used to be able to still use a, a, a product that um, killed the leaves off. That's very important because I've, I've got a comment on uh, one of the videos about um, using a certain product that kills the roots, which we can't use because uh, the root of the potato is the um, the potato. What's well, the bit you eat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so we don't want to damage that. So we used to go in with with, with a product that used to just uh, kill the a chloroform off in the leaf and stop the potato growing, obviously. But uh, now that um, we can't use that anymore, so we have now switched to using the, the frow topper. So we literally just top the potatoes a little bit more in advance what we would have done because it's a bit slower process to stop them growing. It's all to do with actual dry matters than what it is to do with uh, the timings as such. Now, I was going to ask so, you about this. What, First of all, for those who don't know, what is the dry mass? What's the dry matter in a potato? The dry matter is exactly what it says. It's the dry matter that's contained within the potato because the potato is made up of a lot of water. 
So if we've got too high dry matter, they're very susceptible to bruising, which is not good because they, the tail goes a little bit, a bit black. And if it's too low, it doesn't take the oil up when they're frying to make chips. And depending on what the end use is, is depending on how much dry matter you need within the potato. So I still grow potatoes that go to make chips in fish and chip shops. So my dry matters need to be anywhere between about 19 to 21. Whereas if they're making crisps, they're higher, they're 21 to 23, I think they are. Okay, so how do you actually test? And how do you now, know when they're right? There's a couple of tests. So I, I could sometimes ring up my merchant who will come down and take a sample and take it back to a lab where they use um, electronic testers and stuff. It's all very cool, apparently. I've never seen this. Or I have got a field test that I just acquired, which uh, is, is brilliant. So we need to put eight pounds of potatoes in a basket, and then we have a device that looks like a boy out of a toilet system, if you know, if, if you can imagine one of them. Yeah, yeah. There's on a long tube, which has got a scale on it. And on the bottom of that, where the ball is, there's a hook, and you basically hook the basket Dunk it, just tunk it in a barrel of water. The potatoes float within the water, and then the scale reads how much dry dry matter is in that potato. Very high tech. That <laughs> oh, that that yeah, I, I, yeah that's, that's, that's hey, very listen, high tech. If it just, works, it works. That's that's all you really need to know. So for yours, you've got to be somewhere between nineteen and twenty-one percent. And when you get to yeah, that point, that. you've got a machine that flails the tops off. Now, yep. from an outsider's point of view, why not just lift them then? Because they're not quite, the skins aren't quite set on some of them. So if the skins are not set, they're not going to store so well. So we need to make sure the skins are set to make sure they're going to store okay within the shed. Because I don't want to open my shed one day and they all they all just go to mush mm. if the skins aren't set. So you've got to toughen them up a bit, basically. A little bit, yes. Yeah. So they're not quite. They're not, I can I can lift them now. Like potatoes, you can eat any time. So as soon as they look like a potato, they're good to go. It's the storage aspects of them. Because I could, I, could, I could lift them now. I could sell them now. That's not a problem. There's a lot of market pressure because everyone's just started lifting at the minute. So the price isn't very buoyant at all. Plus as well, there's the actual lifting and processing on farm because I put them in bags. There's a lot of time in bagging. I mean, me and, there's only me and my father down here. I've got him and my cousin. But even so, we can probably only manage, what, 20 tonne a day, mm. which is probably not enough when we're lifting and putting them in the shed. We can do 10 acre a day. Is there a limit to how long you can leave them in the field for? There must be. There's not. All they'll do is just start regrowing. They'll just get chits on again, just start to regrow. And they just knock the chits off and carry on. I'm going to go back to when I was a lot younger. I'm not actually that old. I'm only 35. (laughs) That's nothing. That's nothing. (laughs) Nothing. My father once, this is years ago, they had a real wet season in the the mid-2000s. Some of your listeners will probably remember. It was a really wet October, November, and they just could not lift them. So they ended up leaving them till the April when they actually lifted them again. It was absolutely fine. The potato was fine. It's still eatable. It was, all it had all it done was just put the shoots out to start regrowing again. They regraded them and sold them again. So you can still leave them within the ground as long as they don't get frost on them. If they get frost on them, then that's when they start. That's where they do start breaking down. Yeah, yeah. Now, what are you actually using to flail the tops off then? It's just a massive, um, it's a massive topper. So it's got a barrel on it that's got frail arms on so little um i want to say triangles of, of metal that go around 540 times a minute and then just smashes the tops off so this is shaped as well within the potato bed so you've got longer frowns that go down the side of the potato, potato rows and shorter ones at the top 
so as it goes along. Yeah, fascinating, interesting, interesting stuff. Luke, you put out quite a few videos on uh, what was Twitter, now X, uh, on various subjects relating to farming. Where can we follow you? I'm literally everywhere. You name it, <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on, I'm on X or the Twitter, we call it. It's down uh, on Daintree Farm, and everywhere else on Facebook, Instagram. TikTok, it's on Daintree Farm, and also the same on YouTube as well. I'm starting to branch out into doing videos about what we do on the farm, like in, kind of like not real time, but like a bit, of a bit of a farming diary. So you definitely see the ups and downs of what we're getting up to. Because some days everyone thinks that uh, farms are well old machine, that uh, everyone knows what they're doing half the time, but you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see that we're just making stuff up as we go along. We've got a bit of a plan, but most of the plans go a little bit wrong. I like to think of myself as Budget Clarkson. And I'm so, I'm, I'm so passionate about connecting people back with their where food comes from. There's a, there's a wave from speaking of Clarks, and there's a wave of uh, a new enthusiasm for farming, and just show you what how it actually goes into your food. Some of the myths that are around farming and what people think and the perceptions are actually nothing like when you get on a proper run-of-the-mill standard family farm. We haven't really got big tackle. We're not got new tackle. We're just growing food as best we can, basically obviously doing it successfully and as you say educating informing people as to what yeah. really goes on on a farm what really really goes on the farm i've got a real real big passion to uh, for children as well i go to a lot of school talks talking about what we do in agriculture on the farm because these children don't know where food comes from i know it's hard to believe but they just they just don't they don't have an interest in it the the, the parents are too busy to talk about it no one's got a veg patch anymore no, these kids don't know. Even like now, if you, you look around a supermarket, you tell me how many families are actually shopping. They're not anymore. They're clicking, collecting. They're going to deliver to the door. So the old joke about where do potatoes come from? Oh, the supermarket. It's not funny anymore. They just open the cupboard and they're there. Mm. So they just magically appear. Well, look, more power to with. your elbow. May you continue with your fascinating oh. videos. And uh, we will talk again. Definitely. Thank you so much. In Lincoln, there are two important events in three weeks' time. One is agricultural chaplain Canon Alan Robson's birthday, and the other is Alan. Well, it's a fantastic opportunity for the county to come together and celebrate at the cathedral. Everybody's welcome. People think it's just for farmers or farm workers or farming families. No, it's for the whole community to think about their food and where it comes from and how fantastic Lincolnshire is at producing livestock as well as all the crops and vegetables and flowers that we grow. So, yep, three o'clock, 22nd of October, on my birthday, it should be a great celebration of everything that is brilliant about Lincolnshire County. Given the summer we've had, is it a, is it a harvest to celebrate this year? It's, um, it's uh, as they say in Lincolnshire, a middle-in. It's a middle-in harvest. It's been good in parts and it's been a long slog to get it in between the showers and the sunshine. And, uh, and for vegetable producers, I suspect the long, hot sun didn't do a lot of good for the broccoli and the cabbages and all those other crops. Um, it's been a very mixed picture in a mixed picture that's going on globally with food in general and the challenges that are coming upon us um, as weather conditions across Europe have been horrendous and we import a lot of product from Europe. And so challenges right now and probably more challenges uh, in the spring and into the next year 
uh, around food and food affordability, which is what the NFU, uh, uh, Minep Batters, has been uh, pleading with the government to get a logical policy uh, that secures affordable, nutritious food for all people everywhere, particularly in our country. Is it still important and why is it so important still to have a harvest festival get together every year to celebrate the harvest is it still relevant these days yeah i you could easily argue that young people are not as connected with nature there was a bit of a story about um, the junior oxford dictionary taking out uh, words to do with nature whether it was the wren or the kingfisher or the conquer or and the editor thought, well, young people don't engage with nature anymore. It's iPhones, iBlogs, iGraphs, whatever. And that is why we need Harvest Festival. Yeah, because it's as basic as all those toppings on your pizzas, all those things at the various chicken outlets, and of which there are many. It doesn't come from, you know, out of the ether. It comes from real people working incredibly hard to produce these products into a system that isn't always fair to the primary producer. So, yeah, it's important to remind people that uh, all this produce is uh, from human hands, harnessing all their skills to make the product grow. And Harvest is about saying, this is about people, it's about livelihoods, it's about labor, it's about creativity it's about innovation it's about technology it's about all sorts of things but we need to simply say thank you gratitude is the heart of harvest harvest festival is all about giving thanks celebration have we got anything positive to celebrate at harvest festival in a few weeks time must be something surely (laughs) look as long as people um, awake with a sense of gratitude at the bird song in the morning and a sunset in the evening and are not all tied up with all the challenges of getting through daily life and earning a living. If people can just listen to the hedgerow, as one poet put it, it um, and listen to and see um, something of beauty every day, I think Harvest Festival is about saying, well, just look for a moment, pause, think, and be grateful. I was sat talking with Canon Alan Robson, Lincolnshire's Agricultural Chaplain at the Lawn in the shadow of the wonderful Lincoln Castle. Looking forward to Harvest Festival, 3pm October the 22nd at Lincoln Cathedral. Hopefully see you there. Do come and say hello. Time now for our weekly walk round the fields. Independent agronomist Sean Sparling has some timely agronomy advice for us and some thoughts on glyphosate following DEFRA Minister Therese Coffey's announcement this week. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. Another wet week then. Well over 35 mil for me and far more for many others across the county early week. And that means not much happening out in the field unless, of course, you're a slug, cabbage stem, flea beetle, pigeon, goose, deer, hare, rabbit, aphid or any other member of Mother Nature's legion of chompers, chewers and nibblers. But we needed that rain. Far better to get it in September than October, as we all know. So with that last bash of summer to end the week on a high, warm, sunny end to the week, positively balmy forecast today. So things are starting 
starting to dry up again and with a better warmer drier forecast for the coming week looks like things are going to kick off on the drilling front potentially a great start to the drilling season now you know we've got soil temperatures in the mid-teens plenty of moisture in the profile and as well as all that the black grass is now starting to come in these stale seedbeds so obviously the black grassier fields want leaving alone until that black grass has had a couple of good flushes over this next three or four weeks that's historically been the main black grass germination period but today of course we see a lot of changes in the way black grass emerges and the way it grows because when I say historically 20 years ago you could pretty much rely upon the majority of your black grass germinating and emerging in the first two to three weeks of October and remember a good flush is about four or five hundred plants a square meter not a couple of dozen and only then if you squint but 10 years ago 90% of the black grass germinated in the top inch today it comes from twice that depth and clearly germinates from much deeper and from throughout the the soil profile actually the main germination period as I say used to be the first three weeks of October then nothing much came again until the spring by which time the crop was big and ugly enough to smother it out as it emerged today it keeps germinating and emerging throughout the winter about 80% of the black grass now emerges between September and the end of November which is why later drilling is recommended in those bad black grass situations the other 20% also emerges from March and then through into the end of May early June without really letting up in between depending on the year than as a result of falling soil temperatures through December January and February so it's a very different beast today than it was even 10 years ago it used to be the heavy land that got the problem today it's everywhere very adaptable weed black grass seeds live for about five years cultivations can reduce that seed burden by about 65 percent per year every head of black grass produces about 100 seeds so with 30 to 40 tillers not uncommon today each plant's going to produce thousands and thousands of viable seeds which is about four times more than they used to because 10 20 years ago 10 tillers per plant was way more common so Grass weeds and especially black grass is potentially a much bigger problem than on the regenerative low-till or no-till farms. And that's why glyphosate is such a vital part of our armoury in these reduced cultivating, reduced soil disturbance, regenerative agriculture systems. Because without the glyphosate, there is no regen farming. And we have to go back to the plough and other invasive cultivation techniques. Incidentally, the reason I mention this is because we heard Therese Coffey say this week that glyphosate is secure for the foreseeable future and obviously I welcome her comments but I still have far more faith in glyphosate itself than I ever will in the words of a politician I have no doubt that she believes that she meant what she said but then politicians say an awful lot of things don't they you know this fast-changing world of government is a very fickle and populist thing and we've all seen the numerous government u-turns over the years regardless of the colour of that government so although Therese Coffey's statement is very welcome. The sad reality is that it really doesn't come with any guarantees at all and words are incredibly cheap. We've heard all these fine words before from Michael Gove, from George Useless and the rest of them. You know, I've done this job a long time. I've read dozens of peer-reviewed scientific papers on glyphosate from independent studies and I've said before that the most dangerous thing about glyphosate is the van that delivers it because unless you're a green plant, it's pretty much one of the safest compounds we're exposed to. It's not residual. It doesn't break down into harmful byproducts. It doesn't hurt animals or humans, and it reduces the need for those damaging cultivations that release carbon from the soils, and it reduces our reliance on fossil fuel use by reducing the passes with the tractors and the other machinery. But there are so many pressure groups who choose to ignore all of those many thousands of independent studies and just dismiss that science as fake news and 
by working together. Unfortunately, these many organisations have a massive influence on both public opinion and our fickle populist decision makers in Westminster, because he who shouts loudest and all that. Now, we know that in time we will get an alternative to glyphosate, but until we get that, any withdrawal or change of use of glyphosate would be catastrophic to most, if not all, conventional farming businesses, particularly those relying upon and implementing regen agricultural practices and low min or no till farming systems. We cannot just assume that it's all fine and dandy then as far as glyphosate goes now because of what Minister for now just said to those she knew wanted to hear it. Do I trust the words of Therese Coffey or any other politician? What do you reckon? So, on to agronomy. Short and sweet this week, Steve. Nothing really to add about all seed rate over last week, other than the wet has started to make those dry fields emerge. But as I said last week, neither with the speed we needed, nor with the volume of emerging plants expected. Still people out there re-drilling all seed rate. We still have warm soils. It still has a chance. But we really are on the letter E of too late now. Still plenty of cabbage stem flea beetle activity in the field, despite their wing muscles degrading away now. So there shouldn't be too many more coming into your fields. But, you know, it's clearly the worst year for cabbage stem flea beetle that we've seen since 2019. And the casualties are numerous and widespread. Very little disease in the rate, though. So that's something. Cereal drilling starting to begin then. You know, we've had a relatively hot summer, really, this year. So the dormancy of that black grass is quite low, judging by how it's now emerging in the cultivated land because of course it's that UV light which promotes the germination of the blackgrass seed and if you cultivate a seedbed there's that flash of UV into the soil and that's sufficient to trigger that germination and it's another good reason to just chip over these stale seedbeds before you go drilling otherwise the action of the drill is going to introduce that flash of UV light and the blackgrass then just comes up with the wheat or the barley. Very little rain from the 10th of last September or so until the 20th of October 2022 last autumn so blackgrass was very very slow to show last year and most of the cereal drilling was already in the ground before that black grass started to emerge. With a bit of luck it'll be through the ground before we start drilling this year. That gives the preems a chance to do some good and of course you know it really is still only the beginning of the last week of September so why anybody's panicking about drilling on the 24th of September is beyond me. Anyway the swallows are still here just and you really shouldn't be putting wheat in the ground while they're still here anyway so I bet you a jam tart there'll be plenty of wheat gone in this week and before I speak to you next week. Never mind, case there are and all that. Let's see what the next seven days bring. Thanks as ever, Sean. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. How often do you sample your soil and have it tested? Why is it important to do so? What's the best way to do it? Soil sampling and testing is a service offered by our friends at Openfield and others. And Lucy Hassel, Openfield's fertiliser manager, is with us. Lucy, firstly, how do you sample soil? What do you actually do? Farmer will receive uh, what we call a soil sampling kit. So it's very easy to use. We always recommend going in a W pattern across the field, avoiding things like gateways and field margins, because we don't need those. Um, we go to a depth of 15 centimetres for arable and 7.5 centimetres for grassland and collect a minimum really of about 20 samples, um, which all gets mixed together. And then we fill a bag that goes off to the laboratory and will then be tested for the available of nutrients in the soil. OK, and why is it actually important to test? That might seem a blooming obvious question, but um, why do you actually need to do this? Well, soil health is a real buzzword today. The government 
continuously review policies and ways to improve the environment. And nutrient use efficiency is a big part of that. So in addition to ensuring we've got good soil structure, we should be soil sampling every three to five years of standard. So soil sampling will identify any nutrient deficiencies, but also surplus amounts that are in the soil. That then allows us to create a nutrient management plan, which we can tailor to the crop's needs to optimise yield. Okay, this... Also, we need to sorry. make sure we're not, sorry, we're not over-applying nutrients because, of course, that will lead to unnecessary cost for the farmer but also impact the environment. So there's a balance, obviously, to be had in this, isn't there? There is, yes. We tend to use standard grades because that's what we've always used historically and that's not maximising return on investment. Um, so it's important that we only apply the amount of nutrients that are actually required by the crop um, rather than any excess. Okay, and this is a service that Openfield provides, or can you get it elsewhere? Yeah, we provide that service, so uh, we can send out a soil sampling kit uh, to any farmer that requests it. Um, there's a, a huge range of different samples that we can do. As a minimum, it's a standard soil test, which is uh, PK magnesium, and that will actually give you a pH result as well. We also, But we actually recommend doing a broad-spectrum test, which is up to 12 nutrients and of course, every nutrient plays a key role. So the more we know about the soil, the more we can make corrections and, and optimise yield. And it's important to get pH right, isn't it, depending on the crop that you're growing? It is, yes. I say a standard soil test will, will give you the pH level of the soil. It's actually the key starting point for any nutrient management plan. So farming practices and environmental factors can lead to soil acidifying. So if a result comes back and it identifies an acidic soil, there will be a recommendation on there for liming. So lime should be the primary input. That will be the key to sort of maximising the value of any fertiliser applications. So if the soil is not at the optimum pH level, which is 6.5 for arable and 6 for grassland, the nutrients will become locked up and unavailable. So the closer you are to your pH target, the more effective your fertiliser will be. So, yeah, really important to test your soil and to test it regularly. And I know there's details of this service on the Openfield website. Lucy, thanks ever so much for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Thank you for having me. Links FM Farming Market Reports. Starting with livestock and from Mason's Rural at Louth Livestock Market, Henry Simpson. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Steve, and welcome to another weekly roundup from the Louth Livestock Market. Starting off with the prime cattle, sort of prime steers, all in average 275.5 pence per kilo. The prime bulls, all in average 269 pence per kilo. And the prime heifers, all in average 217 pence per kilo. The prime steers were topped by John Scully of Bournemouth at 1487 pounds per head, or at 275 pence per kilo. The prime bulls were topped by G.E. Thurby of Kexby at £1,576 per head or at 269 pence per kilo. The prime heifers were also topped by J.E. Thurby of Kexby at £1,372 per head or at 249 pence per kilo. Just a few stall cattle entered this week, which are topped by J. Russell and Partners of Hatton with an exceptional run of Limcross steers topping to £1,160 per head. And that wraps up the cattle and now onto the sheep. Smaller entry of prime lambs this week, which saw a SQQ of 252.92 pence per kilo and an oil average of 248.32 pence per kilo. Top of the day goes to JW Allison of Thorsway to £141 per head or 300 pence per kilo. Now onto the Kuyus, saw a larger entry compared to last week with 124 forward, which saw an average per head of £105.11. 
With a top price going to JM Robinson and Son Limited of Great Limber, which achieved a staggering £177 per head. Just a handful of store lambs entered this week, average per head of £90.60, with a top price from P&J Hoys and Son of Stalinborough to £99 per head. And just as a reminder, we are sending again tomorrow, so we are taking entries for Prime and Cool Cows, as well as Prime, Cool and Store Sheep. We also have our first autumn special show and sale of suckle calves and store cattle coming up. That is Friday the 6th of October, so please do not hesitate to contact the team with any entries. This has been Henry Simpson from the Mason Drill team. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. Now with our weekly look at the grain markets, Open Fields Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. Following the expiration of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, from which Russia withdrew, stating their demands had not been met, Ukraine launched their own version of the humanitarian corridor. To date, two vessels have berthed in the Black Sea port of Kornomorsk, one of which had been loaded with 4,000 tonnes of wheat and exited via the corridor. So far, there has been no response by Russia, although this cannot be discounted. Rumours of additional vessel fixtures circulate and Russia will be monitoring these closely. Reports that a vessel had hit a mine in Romanian waters saw prices spike briefly on Wednesday, which demonstrates the sensitivity of the attacks on the maritime vessels. The EU ban on Ukrainian exports via Romania, Bulgaria, Poland and Slovakia through transit only expired on the 15th of September, although this has been met with mixed reactions with Hungary and Poland taking a unilateral action to extend the ban. The remaining states are considering Ukrainians' proposals to tighten the flow via the import-export licensing system, although Romania are to extend the import controls for at least 30 days. Relations between Poland and the Ukraine are deteriorating, and Ukraine's threat to sue those who do not adhere to the EU's lifting ban will not go down well. The market is trying to stabilise at levels close to recent lows, and with the Northern Hemisphere harvest almost over, attention will switch to the Southern Hemisphere prospects, particularly in Australia, Argentina, Brazil, where El Nino looms large. Managed funds continue to press the short side of the market and will need to trigger them for them to change tack. So looking at barley, another very quiet week on malting barley. Export and domestic buyers are extremely hard to find. To counter that, sellers have seemingly gone to ground as field work now takes precedent. Harvest in England has now been completed, samples are being gathered. Early drilled barley looks to have made the best quality with low nitrogens and decent retentions, although visually it has taken some weather. The later drilled harvest barley was proved to be a mixed bag with significantly higher nitrogen and germination issues being seen. Scottish harvest is nearly completed and quality issues have been found. So looking at all seed rape this week, Matif Rapeseed has continued to see pressure with the November contract breaking below €440 before finding any support. The market attention remains on the US soybeans following the prolonged period of dry weather. The latest condition report rated 52% of the crop as good to excellent, which is the worst rating soybeans have had at this time of year since 2013. This month's WASDE report projected the US soybean harvest at 4.146 million bushels, down from 4.205 last month. An average yield of 50.1 bushels an acre, down from 50.9. Overall, the report tightened the outlook for the oil seeds, which was largely expected. There were also starting to see some harvest pressure with the US bean harvest 5% complete as of the 17th of September. There's been talk that the actual yields are disappointing, but it is still very early days. So looking at prices this week, October feed wheat 175 to 185, November 176 to 186, moving forward into the new year, February 181 to 191, May 187 to 197. Milling wheat premiums are currently 65 to 70 pounds depending on quality. 
Feed barley for October 151 to 161, November 154 to 164, February 157 to 167, May 160 to 170. For malting barley premiums, please speak to your open field farm business manager. And lastly, oilseed rape for October 331 to 341, November 336 to 346, February 345 to 355, and May 354 to 364. Thank you, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five day forecast. Breezy from the south to southwest with some light rain most days this week. Mild to start the week, highs in the upper teens to 20 Celsius. The winds turn very gusty midweek, and it's turning a few degrees cooler for the second half of the week. Finally, congratulations to John Carlisle from Dumfriesshire, Heidi Wilson from Blackpool and Richard Peck from Suffolk, this year's winners of the Farmers Weekly Britain's Fittest Farmer Competition for 2023. Well-deserved champions of the best of physical and mental wellness within agriculture. Brilliant. Next week, we'll talk money, especially input costs, look at those new rules for buying fertiliser, and the 4x4s are back. We're with the police as they launch Operation Galileo, targeting the hair courses. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.